Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. <laughs> I just learned something. Oh, I'm having fun now. Herbert now rebranded his basement to, and this is true, the Laboratory of Forensic Science, and he appointed himself the director. <laughs> so it turns out I am also the director of my basement. And uh, you can be too, Duncan. We, we, we can don't be, have a basement. We can be basement co-directors. That's true. Which we, must, we lack the requisite material. It's a new year, Duncan. It is? Shit, I missed it. New year, same us. Yes. <laughs> I have not grown as a human over the past year. Nope. Made no efforts whatsoever. Nope. And I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. In fact, my resolution is to learn nothing from the mistakes of 2023, to not evolve as a person, mm. uh, but instead to regress to a state of irresponsible bachelorhood. Mm. I like it. I like it. Yes. I, I like being me. Yeah, I'm doing a great job so mm. far. It's going really well. If you set the bar low enough, it's not hard to achieve, as we have learned in every aspect of this show. <laughs> Seriously, I have not been focused on myself recently. I think I'm a lost cause. So most of my goals for 2024 involve the podcast, and I'm happy to report that we're already well on our way to achieving them. So I'm calling it a win. Cool. The show has been growing, honestly, at a breakneck pace and inexplicably. Yeah, we don't really know how that happened. We haven't changed anything. I am proud of the fact that our trajectory has always been up and to the right, but it was not like a steep incline. It was, it was very gradual, yeah. which is how most shows grow. Yeah, it was, it was a hill you could walk without running out of breath. Until now. Yeah. Over the last couple of months, I do not know what happened. We have seen almost suspiciously impressive growth. <laughs> it's a little weird. We're, we're a little sus. We're a little worried. If you guys are spreading the word, you're killing it. And please keep doing whatever you're doing. And of course, welcome to all of the new listeners. As Duncan likes to say, you are home here. Yes. Even if you're bots. I mean... We, we, we don't discriminate. I mean, you don't. <laughs> Wendigo and I have an ongoing problem with the bots. As the insomniacs know, I have always welcomed our robot overlords. But whatever the explanation, I really want to continue this momentum into 2024. I want this to be the year of Miffy. And right now, we are looking for suggestions for supercharging this growth. So feel free to shoot me a message, hit me up on Instagram or Discord or at midnightfactsforinsomniacs at gmail.com because I have to tell you, the Insomniacs have been our greatest asset. Absolutely. Insomniacs created the Discord. Indeed. Taught us how to market the show, provided designs and logos and lots of ideas for promoting. So a giant thank you for everything you did in 2023, whether that was telling a friend, telling a bunch of friends, joining the Patreon, leaving reviews. And of course, thank you to our amazing mods and to June and Llama. It is a cliche, but only because it's true. We would not be here without all of you. And we want to make this year the best possible. Yes, there would be no Miffy without I, but I mean, you is what we're talking about. So wait. So on to today's episode. Yes. This is another huge topic. Oh, good. And as you know, I have learned my lesson. We're going to split this one into multiple episodes. Okay. At least two, maybe more, because the topic today is forensic science. Oh, shit. Okay. It's a large umbrella. It is. At its most fundamental, forensic science, or forensics, is the science behind solving crimes. Yes. The studying things that are deaded and making them live, or at least have a story. <laughs> that would be a different, that's more no, like that's, a Frankenstein. I've, I've read Frankenstein. I'm pretty sure that's forensics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
It is a fascinating field of study, simultaneously capable of providing justice to innocent victims and also occasionally victimizing the innocent. Many elements of forensics are notoriously unreliable, while some are borderline useless or outright quackery and should probably be as illegal as some of the crimes that they are attempting to solve. There is no infallible method of determining guilt. Even DNA evidence, the gold standard of forensic analysis, has its weaknesses. Yep. And detectives are just as flawed as many of their techniques. Humans gonna human. Yeah, yeah. Sherlock Holmes, while one of my heroes, is a fictional character, closer to a superhero than a true detective. And he was addicted to heroin. I think it was actually cocaine. Was it cocaine? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, if I got that wrong, I apologize, and I was thinking of the Benedict Cumberbatch version. Yeah, I don't think he would have been as productive had it been heroin. Yeah, yeah. That's fair. An energetic dude. He would he would be be playing the violin at like four in the morning. Watson was a very permissive and uh, and patient roommate. Well, yeah, but also like, dude, if you're hanging around with somebody that smart and they have some quirks, you just let that shit go. No, I won't need my sleep. You complained about me being on the phone <laughs> at like two in the morning. Imagine if I were coked out and playing violin mm. all night long. That's fair. I never did live with Metal Mike, so that's fair. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's start with a short history of forensics. It's strange to think that there was a time before forensic science and even before police investigations. But of course, there was a time before any science or police or laws. It was definitely a great time to be sneaky. If no one witnessed your crime, you had a pretty solid chance of getting away with it. In fact, the main methods of determining guilt in the primitive world consisted of eyewitness accounts, oaths, and confessions, three techniques that rely on human integrity. So what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, and 90% of those confessions were obtained by torturing the shit out of the person for days. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's unfortunately still the case in a lot of countries, and uh, even in, the, in this country at various times. <laughs> Another common method of determining guilt was trial by ordeal, or trial by combat. Hmm. Basically, the theory was that if you could kill a lion or some giant dude or, you know, some other scary uh, opponent, hmm. then God must have your back. And God would not have the back of a murderer, obviously. I mean, <laughs> that has not been traditionally the case. The only murderer that God supports is God. Yes. And killing thousands of people is a grievous sin unless the murder weapon is a flood. And yes. then, then that's different. Then you're good. So trial by combat was a real thing. And as it turns out, Duncan, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but innocence often corresponds to athleticism mm. and general level of badassery. I am guilty AF. <laughs> as a fat, drunken, slovenly person, I am guilty <laughs> as fuck. <laughs> yeah, God apparently has the back of a bunch of guys named Grok who were built like Conan the Barbarian. Right. Yeah. yeah. Just another version of the survival of the fittest, I guess. Mm -hmm. In medieval times, another infamous method for determining the guilt of a murderer specifically was to bring the body of the victim within the vicinity of the accused if the body of the victim were exposed to the murderer supposedly the corpse's wounds would begin to bleed. This was referred to as cruentation. This sounds dumb as fuck and can only be the product of people not understanding biological science. It sounds like a way better system if you're the murderer. Yeah. <laughs> this is, I, I, if I were accused of murder, I would prefer this trial by corpse vicinity to trial by combat any day. Yeah, just hope the wounds aren't on the bottom of the body, so while the blood is pooling, it just comes out. Yeah, bodies dry up pretty quick. 
Yeah. So presumably a lot of murder suspects benefited from this method, but not always. A National Geographic article explains, quote, it's possible that if a body had been dead long enough, the early stages of decomposition may have produced a liquid called purge fluid that can build up in the lungs. Then when someone poked or jostled a body that was brought forth for a trial, some of this fluid could have leaked from the nose or other orifices. Yeah, and while that's disgusting as fuck, and I don't want to think about it anymore, because I know actually what purge fluid is. It's black and brackish and smells god-awful. Jesus. Yeah, it's literally your body breaking down into a liquid form. Purge fluid. uh, That's a a better name for masturbation, I think. (laughs) I'll be right back. I have to go. Purge fluid. Purge Purge valves getting on my mind. So lest you think cruentation was some obscure method of prosecution that was rarely implemented, quote, such trials weren't confined to small towns or backwater provinces. No one less than King James I of England was a firm believer in cruentation, unquote. Mm. When it comes to the actual science part of forensic science, the Greek mathematician Archimedes is often credited with pioneering the use of forensic techniques via his water displacement formula. According to legend, he noticed that when he got into his bath, the water rose, and he figured out that an object placed in a body of water, by virtue of water being uncompressible, will displace an amount of water that is equal to its volume. So if you divide the mass of the object by the volume of water displaced, you can then calculate the density of the object. Okay. Did you follow all that? I I, became humming after you said water a couple times. Archimedes was supposedly so elated by this revelation that he hopped out of his bath and ran naked through the street shouting, Eureka. Ah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. There are very few things that would cause me to run naked through the street, but none of them would have anything to do with math. <laughs> Bro, unless I've just mathematically figured out how to get the hot woman who works above me to go with me instead of her current boyfriend, I don't care. I feel like he was looking for an excuse. Yeah. Streaking is a fetish. <laughs> yeah. Archimedes wanted people to see his little Acropolis. Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, he, he was Greek, so it could have been a massive Acropolis. We don't know. So the legend continues. There's more. Whoever was spinning this ridiculous tall tale just could not help himself. Mm. So there's a second part to the story. King Hero II of Syracuse had commissioned a golden crown, but wanted to make sure that the maker of the crown hadn't mixed in some silver to save money. Mm. Gold has a greater density than silver, so by measuring the volume of water displacement using his extremely exciting new method, Archimedes was able to bust the corrupt crown maker. Hopefully he did it while not nude. Or corrupt maker of crowns, I guess. To clarify, not a maker of corrupt crowns. Mm. It was not the crown's fault. (laughs) Fucking (laughs) inanimate objects. Also, how bougie are you that, like, having a little silver in with your gold is just unacceptable? I mean, he is a king, so, you know. I want the preciousest of metals, not just precious metals. Precious. My preciousest. That's if uh, Gollum had a lisp, I suppose. (laughs) Weirdly, this crown story does not show up anywhere in Archimedes' own writings and would have required extremely sensitive instruments capable of measuring the small amount of displaced water. So I'm calling BS. Yeah, yeah. But it is a fun story. Uh, Most stories of early forensic science are similarly anecdotal and probably didn't happen in anything resembling the established narrative. One of the earliest involves a murder in ancient China. A peasant had been hacked to death with a scythe, so a local lawman gathered together some suspects and he had them lay down their scythes side by side. A lot of S's in this episode. (laughs) 
Uh, he soon noticed flies were flocking to one because the insects apparently were still able to detect remnants of blood despite the murderer's best efforts to clean the murder weapon. And so he arrested the owner of that scythe. Now, that's unfortunate because what really happened was that guy had just accidentally dropped his scythe in pig shit and yeah. he hadn't done a damn thing. Yeah. The moral of this tale, forensic evidence has been sketchy from the very beginning. Yeah. <laughs> that scythe could have been exposed to manure or honey. Oh, yep. This is a great example of the problems with relying on whatever the current flavor of forensics might be. Hmm. Cough bite marks. Cough. <laughs> I think we covered that in one episode, we did. didn't we? I know we did. We've talked about that one. We talked about fingerprinting. We've talked about a bunch of these. So yeah. We're going to get more into fingerprinting in a while. I mean, that's a pretty legit forensic science relative to the others. Okay. Well, I mean, but relative to the others, like... Again, we've talked a lot about where the bar is set yeah, in this fair. episode. You can trip over this bar pretty good. In fact, almost all forensic science relies on what is known as the theory of discernible uniqueness. This is the idea that there are elements of human bodies or gun barrels, etc., that are completely unique. These objects leave singular marks or residue that can be matched to only one source. Fingerprints, footprints, gun barrels, handwriting, bite marks, all of these have been or still often are considered to be discernibly unique. Right. But as you mentioned, there is a lot of skepticism when it comes to pretty much all areas of forensic science. Quote, the demise of the theory of discernible uniqueness has made conclusions more difficult to justify. Most experts now acknowledge that the examiner must make a decision about whether the evidence is strong enough to support a definitive conclusion, but there does not appear to be a generally accepted theory regarding how experts should make that decision. Unquote. Excellent. So we've come up with at least, we know that we should know something. We don't yet know the thing. We've identified the problem. Right. And I guess that's a start. I mean, that's where we went to lunch. It's not great <laughs> if you're in jail. No. For some bullshit. Yeah. But, uh, you know, at least, hey, we're admitting our ignorance. Right. So, our bad. <laughs> you should be proud of us at least for admitting it. Come on. Forensics at its best is still a science of probabilities. Reputable forensic investigators will often attempt to quantify their degree of certainty utilizing likelihood ratios. A likelihood ratio of 1,000, for example, represents the expert's view that the observed patterns are 1,000 times more probable under one hypothesis than under the alternative hypothesis, unquote. Huh. Okay, I got most of that because statistics, but... So the term likelihood ratio might sound familiar because in America we use it in one particularly famous area of forensics and one with which Maury Povich would be familiar. When he says, you are not the father, he's really saying, based on DNA evidence, it is statistically unlikely that you are the father. But that doesn't sound as cool. Exactly. Yeah. Because saying, like, you're probably not the father, dude, leaves a lot of wiggle room. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, I, I would like to test again. This kid doesn't look like me. And uh, I need time to pack for non-extradition country. <laughs> so you probably gathered earlier that DNA evidence is the one that we consider to be the most, the kind of the gold standard. Right. But as we will see in our next episode, still has some issues. However, you can separate the history of forensics into two distinct periods. I guess call it BD and AD, before DNA and after DNA. Because forensic science did experience a giant leap forward in the 1980s. And we're, as I mentioned... Not going to talk about that today. No. <laughs> I'm just going to keep teasing you with that fact. We will instead start with the most famous and celebrated element of forensics, popularized by detective novels and crime shows galore, and that is fingerprints. The scientific name for the skin on your fingers, palms, feet, and toes is dermal ridge skin. 
It is particularly sensitive to sensation and pressure, and it lacks sebaceous glands, or hair. The whorls and ridges that make up a fingerprint are formed while you're in the womb, starting around 13 weeks, and are fully formed by 17 weeks. The source of the particular patterns is a hotly debated topic. The prevailing theory for years was that genetics account for about 95% of our fingerprint patterns, and then the remaining 5% would be the result of environmental factors in the womb. Hmm. So maybe like how you pressed your finger on the walls of the uterus or something. Hmm. But last year, researchers claimed to have solved the mystery. They presented compelling evidence that the design of finger ridges is created by what is known as a Turing pattern. T-U-R-I-N-G. Is that... Ring a bell? Mm-hmm. Alan Turing was the father of computers, and he proposed this idea. It is a complicated process, but essentially there are molecules that are programmed to form these ridges, and then a competing molecule that is tasked with inhibiting that process. And the competing action of these two forces results in the unique pattern of our prints. Huh. And that actually helps explain why identical twins do not have identical fingerprints. That I did not know. Holy shit. They are very similar, but not the same. So sorry to all the aspiring murderers who have a twin that they wanted to frame. Damn it. Wait, no, I don't have a twin. No. You have a brother, but uh, no. <laughs> you just don't look very much like I was going to say, there's no fucking way anyone would look at the two of us and go, yeah, you're twins. Mm. They also wouldn't believe that uh, if, if somebody murdered somebody yeah. uh, between the two of you. Oh, it's me. <laughs> it's, Absolutely. No yeah, no one's buying that. No. Your brother's very zen. Yeah. You'd definitely be on the other. Other other end of the spectrum. Not very zen, pretty chaotic, Mm -hmm. violent on occasion. Chaotic neutral. Yeah. Chaotic, more chaotic, is that a thing? Yeah. Chaotic plus? Chaotic squared. (laughs) So the process by which these ridges form is very similar actually to how a leopard gets its spots or how a zebra gets its unique pattern of stripes. Hmm. Functionally, finger ridges, they seem to help us with refining our sense of touch. They move along surfaces and then vibrate in different ways based on the sort of terrain that they're feeling, sending signals to the brain that allow us to more accurately perceive texture. They also contribute to our ability to grip. The moisture that makes up a fingerprint functions a little bit like when you lick your fingers so that you can like leaf through the pages of a book. Which is super gross, but yeah. Yeah, basically your fingers are always, they're like little tongues. They're just exuding moisture. Ew. It gets worse. Oh, good. So according to the most popular classification, which we'll explore in more depth later, there are three types of fingerprints. The loop, the whorl, W-H-O-R-L. I don't really even know how to pull that off. Whorl. Whorl or arch. About 60% of fingers have loop-type prints in which the ridges are long loops, almost like a series of nested paper clips. And then 35% of fingers have the whorl, which consists of concentric ovals. You can have a mixture of fingerprints. I didn't know this. Your thumb could have the whorl, and your index finger could have the loop, and, you know, etc. You could have some arches thrown in there. But people whose fingerprints are predominantly whorls are generally considered more outgoing, personable, and attractive than their generic and pedestrian loop or arch counterparts. I mostly have the whorl prints. I don't know if I mentioned that. Yeah, I, I, can, I will give a shirt to any listener right now who isn't staring fascinatedly at their fingers. <laughs> Only 5% of fingers sport those uh, arches, and that's good because people with more than two arches are exclusively sociopaths. Really? Once again, it's just, just science. Mm-hmm. I only have two arches, so mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm good. I squeaked by. <laughs> I have all of the arches. <laughs> So the unique pattern of ridges on each of your fingers are referred to as dermatoglyphs. 
Here is an official explanation of the scientific structure behind them. Quote, the dermal papillae, singular papilla, uh, that's the diminutive of Latin papilla or pimple, these are small nipple-like extensions or interdigitations of the dermis into the epidermis. At the surface of the skin, in hands and feet, they appear as epidermal papillary or friction ridges, colloquially known as fingerprints, unquote. That was a lot of science that I'm just going to... I will forever refer to finger ridges as pimple nipples. <laughs> kind of messed me up yep, when I read that. That's kind of fucked. Those pimple nipples exude organic compounds like sweat and oils, etc., which often leave a residue on objects that we touch. Fingerprints are actually up to 99% water, but they also include, among other biological compounds, uh, fatty acids, proteins, glucose, and urea. Urine. <laughs> Fucking Jesus. You said there were tongues, not scrotums. Remember I told you that it was going to get worse? You did. You I, had, I had no idea that I've been peeing out of my pimple nipples. <laughs> <laughs> this is getting horrific. Holy shit. <laughs> and there are actually people who are born without fingerprints. And I kind of envy them now because they're not uh, pimple nipple pissers. <laughs> <laughs> See that three times fast. <laughs> that condition is also known, by the way, as wasted potential mm. if you are not living the life of a supervillain. Yeah, but doesn't that also mean they can't feel things as well? Because I guess, yeah. Because the ridges are supposed to help. So they're like, they're texture blind. Yeah, they, they're trying to steal that diamond, but they don't know which it's dark in there. And then they end up with like a sack of flour. Or something. <laughs> if you confuse a sack of flour for a diamond, you deserve all of the jail time. So anyone who has used a smartphone or laptop with a fingerprint reader knows that fingerprint science is legit. When I got my first iPhone with the fingerprint unlock, I remember I spent days just trying to see if anyone else could unlock my phone. And uh, at least for me, nope. Hmm. According to Apple, the odds are 1 in 50,000 that someone else could unlock your iPhone with their fingerprint. I tried probably around 20. So I guess I, you know, I had a ways to go. Yeah. If you have a lot of enemies, I guess maybe this might be a problem. Yeah. I, at first when you said, I said, I tried 20 and I was like 20,000. Yeah. What did you do with your days back then, bro? <laughs> <laughs> Just wandering around Davis holding out your phone. I don't have that many friends. Yeah. And if you have that many enemies, you have bigger problems than trying to lock your phone. Yeah. In fact, if you have that many enemies, I wouldn't worry about somebody fucking with your phone. Duck. So the fingerprint readers are, are pretty useful, but of course it's still risky. One in 50,000, those are good odds, but last time I checked, there are almost 8 billion humans on Earth, and most of them have fingers. And at least one of them might have your exact fingerprint. Mm. We humans love to throw around aphorisms like, no two snowflakes are the same, but there's no way to actually prove that the world has never hosted a pair of identical snowflakes. Yeah, that's, I mean, <laughs> it's more of a metaphor, isn't it? It's not really like an actual truism. It's definitely not like a true scientific saying, but it is a thing that everyone seems to believe. Right. And again, I don't think we've ever found two identical snowflakes, but I also don't know how many scientific man hours have been dedicated to trying to find yeah. identical snowflakes. How hard were we really working? Mostly we just stick out our tongues. And I would like my tax dollars back. Yeah. I mean, if they, that were the case. Yeah. They could have been doing things that are much more useful, like, you know, studying cow tipping. I do. I have affection for that episode. Yeah. I'll never escape the image of an entire football team <laughs> charging at poor Bessie. Bessie. <laughs> but the biggest problem with fingerprints has very little to do with the friction ridges themselves. Rather, it's an issue with accurately making an impression of those ridges. In fact, if you were to quote unquote lift a fingerprint from a crime scene and then lift that same print again, 
there would be detectable differences between the two prints. This is also true, by the way, of prints that are taken at a police station using ink. Those are known as exemplar prints. If you were to collect the same person's exemplar prints twice in a row, just like seconds apart, there would still be differences. Yep. Even with the modern digital ones. Yep. And it makes sense. Like the ridges on your finger, they get compressed or squeezed in different ways based on the angle at which the person is pressing their finger down or the amount of pressure. So what we think of as an exact science is very much not. Yeah. Quote, when fingerprint comparisons are being made, they are not being made from friction ridge skin to friction ridge skin. They are being made from one imperfect, incomplete recording to another. Hence, correctly associating a degraded mark to its true source is by no means a certainty, even were one to presume absolute uniqueness of all friction ridge skin. Unquote. Try to say friction ridge skin over and over again. Yeah, I prefer not to. It's your job, and I'm happy you have that, it. And that quote can suck it. Yes. So I think it's important to emphasize that fingerprint impressions, even ones that have been successfully used to help secure a conviction in a trial, are often low quality, incomplete, and did not always match perfectly with the prints of the suspect. Most prints are latent, meaning invisible to the naked eye, and partial, meaning partial, <laughs> and they have to be transmitted to a crime lab somehow, often incurring damage or alteration along the way. Hmm. So part of the job of a forensic expert is to make educated guesses. You could be convicted of a crime even if your fingerprints don't match the impressions that were taken at the scene of the crime as long as a researcher decides that they're similar enough. Right. Furthermore, there is no universally accepted method of dactyloscopy, which is the actual science of comparing individual fingerprints. You say science. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> <laughs> different countries and different organizations have created different methods over the years and haven't been able to settle on a single standard even though they've had plenty of time by now. And plenty of crime. Historically, fingerprints were used as far back as 200 BC in Babylon to sign documents on clay tablets. In 650 AD, a Chinese official explicitly stated that fingerprints could be used as unique identifiers. But fingerprints would not be employed regularly in Europe for identification purposes until the mid-17th century, when German anatomist Johann Christopher Andreas Meyer asserted that fingerprints were unique and could be used to identify a particular individual. The three most widely accepted fingerprint patterns that we're familiar with today, loop, whorl, and arch, were first identified in 1823 by Czech anatomist Jean Evangelista Perkine. Sure. Well, his last name has like a little half circle above the E, and I don't know what that means. Neither do I. It wasn't until about 60 years later, in 1880, that Scotsman Henry Fouds proposed fingerprints be actively collected for the purposes of comparison. Soon, police departments were collecting prints, but that created a new problem because they needed to develop some method for sorting, categorizing, and quickly retrieving them from among the thousands of uh, fingerprint cards that were being collected. Right. Thus were developed simple classification systems, and there have been multiple competing versions of these classification systems throughout the years, there's the Rosher system, the Juan Vucetic system, and my favorite, the Henry system. <laughs> Mostly because it's really easy to pronounce. It's a little simpler. Yeah. That's how popular this system became. It's, it's the Madonna or Lizzo of fingerprint systems. doesn't mm. need more than one name. Got it. Everyone knows the, the Henry. Right. Invented uh, by George. <laughs> it was actually named after Sir Edward Henry who was involved in its creation in the late 19th century, and the Henry system is the foundation of the one that we Americans use today. I mentioned that these classification systems were simple, but that's only because I've seen them described that way. 
I have learned a lot from this podcast, and one thing I've learned is that the word simple is very subjective. <laughs> and sometimes an outright lie. Quote, Henry's classification system assigned a value to each individual finger. Fingers number one and two, being the right thumb and the right index, held a value of 16. Fingers number three and four, the right middle and ring, held a value of eight, and so on. Whenever a whorl pattern appeared in a finger, the corresponding value was added to the base value of one. Henry used a fraction-type primary classification, which took the accrued values of the even-numbered fingers as the numerator and the accrued value of the odd-numbered fingers as the denominator. Therefore, a person with the fingerprint pattern loop-loop-arch-whorl-loop in the right hand and whirl-loop-whirl-loop-loop in the left hand would have a primary fingerprint classification of 15 over 1, while a person with no whorl patterns would have a primary classification of 1 over 1, unquote. Gotcha. You all set? Mm-hmm. Going to be on the test, I'm sure. I feel like most of the time, the only thing simple in this podcast is me. Uh, us. Us. Yeah. We are simple men. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I can follow the steps. Like, the implementation of this process is pretty simple. But beyond that, just no thank you. <laughs> no me gusta. I don't understand the rationale behind it. I actually watched a YouTube video, and it featured a woman who was demonstrating how to classify a particular person's fingers via the Henry system. So it was like a tutorial. Hmm. And she was getting pretty muddled about halfway through, and that made me feel better. <laughs> I liked seeing other people struggle Simpletons unite. All the stupid of the world, follow me where I don't know. She forged on. I liked that she clearly was starting to get a little confused and was like, we're just going with it. She didn't, just trust me, it fucking works. She didn't, you can edit a video, but yeah. she was like, nah, whatever. <laughs> I care this many. So the classification systems were methods for sorting and retrieving fingerprint cards, but they didn't help when it came to comparing an individual exemplar print to a print from a crime scene. And as I mentioned, there is no universally accepted method of comparing those individual fingerprints. In one method, quote, comparisons are performed by an analyst who views the known and suspect prints side by side. So the fingerprint examiner might use a small magnifier called a loop, L-O-U-P-E, to view minute details of a print. And then a pointer called a ridge counter is used to count the friction ridges, unquote. Hmm. Sounds very high tech. And boring AF. <laughs> guy just sitting there counting ridges all day. Yeah. And what if you lost count? You'd be like, ah, fuck, now I have to start over. Yeah. I trust ridge counter guy not at all. Yeah. Yeah. The first crime ever solved by a fingerprint was in Argentina back in 1892. A woman named Francisca Rojas, she was found guilty of murdering her two sons when a bloody fingerprint at the crime scene matched the print from her right thumb. That was actually done before you could even lift fingerprints. Uh, transferring latent prints to a crime lab became possible in 1901 when Scotland Yard adopted the technique that had been developed by pioneering French scientist Paul-Jean Coulier. I guess there was no scotch tape back then. Mm. That was the preferred method of 12-year-olds when I was young. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have one of those fingerprint kits with like the duster? Yep. But uh, Paul-Jean Coulier, he used iodine fuming. That is a toxic procedure that, as far as I can tell, did not result in what you might call high-quality prints. Hmm. Here's a photo of an iodine print. What? <laughs> That's a fucking Rorschach test. That's not a print. It's, a, it's an amorphous blob. It, it, it looks like a cancerous mole, bro. I'm sure most of them were better. They had to be because that is a smudge. Yeah. They're, it is indecipherable and definitely indistinguishable. Right. If you get convicted on that, you got railroaded. You do. The judge did not like you. No. 
<laughs> you farted one too many times and that wouldn't stand. And the judge was like, get him out of here. He's guilty. Regardless, American police departments adopted the iodine fuming method in the early 1900s, and the science expanded and presumably improved. I hope. Good God, we hope. From there. Nowadays, most fingerprint matching is done by computer, a process in which a succession of fingerprints cycle quickly on a screen until a match to a known international criminal is detected, at which point the words match detected flash urgently and a picture of a mean-looking thug pops up. I, I know this is a lie because we've talked about this not being the case. At least that is what I have learned from television shows. Right. Yes. yes. And many movies. There are giant databases, though, of, uh, of prints. One in particular, quote, known prints are often collected from persons of interest, victims, others present at the scene, or through search of one or more fingerprint databases, such as the FBI's Integrated Automated Fingerprint Identification System, the IAFIS. IAFIS is the largest fingerprint database in the world, and as of June 2012, had more than 7 million print records from criminals, military personnel, government employees, and other civilian employees, unquote. Right. So when you become a psychologist or when you go to work in a classroom uh, with, you know, like special needs kids, they fingerprint you. Or with any kids. I was a substitute teacher. I had to get fingerprinted. Yeah. And uh, those statistics, by the way, for 7 million, that was over 10 years ago, so I'm sure it's significantly bigger by now. That database, I'm sure, has expanded. Absolutely. As I mentioned, they do have my prints uh, because I was a a substitute and uh, probably also from, you know, all those crimes (laughs) from the the early aughts. Yes. It was a busy time for me. I I as well have (laughs) conflicting prints, so to speak. (laughs) Moving on to the final forensic technique that we're going to look at today, uh, blood spatter. This always struck me as goofy AF, but I wonder if it actually works. No, you were your instinct. Go with your gut. Hmm. Yeah, this one hurts, actually, because it undermines the foundation of one of my favorite all-time TV shows. Dexter. If if not, maybe my favorite TV show, yeah. Did you ever watch Dexter? Oh, yeah. I watched it all the way through. Oh, loved it. Yeah. It was amazing and trashy and amazingly trashy. Uh, Michael C. Hall played the titular Dexter, a vigilante serial killer. Which sounds like a ridiculous contradiction, because it is, <laughs> but if you can't suspend disbelief and occasionally turn off your brain, you probably shouldn't be watching television. In the I place. would say it's a massive detriment to watching television. Mm-hmm. Dexter harnessed his sociopathy and used it like a superpower to hunt and kill the bad guys. At least that was what he did for fun. For his day job, he worked in a crime lab as a blood spatter expert. And as you will remember, the show depicts the science of blood spatter analysis as borderline glamorous. If you haven't seen it, Dexter would view a crime scene and then he would like measure and outline all the blood stains. And then he would sort of figure out the trajectories of the blood by pinning these red strings to the wall and to the floor. The crime scene would end up looking like some kind of red string 3D sculpture, just arranged in like geometric and kaleidoscopic patterns. Yeah, or, you know, the world's most paranoid schizophrenic, you know, (laughs) mapping pattern of what happened. It was very Charlie from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, the the classic meme. Yeah. 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 It does look very cool, I have to say. It's very artsy Mm. and apparently is a real thing that some investigators would do. Of course, investigators do many things. For instance, employ psychics. That's a thing that investigators have done. (laughs) Investigators sometimes dumb as shit. (laughs) Just saying. I love that they employ psychics occasionally. It's like, how would you even defend that in court? This lady dreamed you. Yeah, or believe in witchcraft, as we learned in our Satanic Panic episode. Yeah. yeah. Investigators, fallible. Yeah, imminently. 
So by sort of triangulating the pattern of the blood with his string art, Dexter could then reenact and recreate the entire choreography of a crime. Somehow the blood would reveal every movement of the victim and perpetrator along with the force and velocity of each stabbing motion or the trajectory of of a gunshot. Uh, It was incredibly impressive, and I used the word incredible here on purpose, indicating the dictionary definition, which is difficult to believe, a.k.a. not credible. Yep. (laughs) It would leave one incredulous. It's largely bullshit. Yeah. And let's find out why. So the grandfather of blood spatter analysis was a guy named Herbert. Of course it was. It was a name that inexplicably just makes me giggle. I, I don't know why. <laughs> I do. Perfectly so, fine name. No, it's not. It sounds goofy as fuck. <laughs> if you're named Herbert out there, I'm sorry. Your parents didn't love you. I have known Herberts, mm. and I've tried really hard not to laugh at them. I mean, you, you never once walked up and been, various, various degrees of success. But his name was uh, Herbert McDonald, and modern blood spatter analysis was birthed in his basement in upstate New York in the mid-1900s. Herbert McDonald played with blood. E-I-E-I-O. <laughs> Young Herbert set up his first laboratory at age seven in 1935. Perfectly normal, perfectly healthy. Well-adjusted little kid. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing to see here. <laughs> so at that point, I think Herbert was mostly just playing around with beakers and vials and chemicals. But he started honing in on his area of expertise when, while still in college studying organic chemistry, he began working at a state crime laboratory in Rhode Island. After Herbert graduated, he went to work for the Corning Glassworks Company, but his heart was in blood, (laughs) metaphorically and, I guess, physically as well. So he began moonlighting as a forensics teacher at a nearby college while also offering his services as a consultant. Herbert's techniques and research were unique, to say the least. He would later admit to shooting dogs in order to study their blood spatter. And uh, covering women's hair with blood, that was another thing he did. Then he would have them, like, shake their heads vigorously. Okay, how much do you actually have to pay a sex worker to cover their hair in blood? Yeah, that sounds like a kink. Yeah, bro. I think he was adding his own spatter. (laughs) Ew. (laughs) Batter spatter. Wow. (laughs) You went there. All right, fair enough. Hey, Insomniacs, just a reminder that for as little as $3 a month, you can join Patreon and get bonus episodes, access to live video streams of After Midnight shows, plus a ton of other perks, and of course, everything we release for patrons is 100% ad-free. Just head over to patreon.com MFFI to support our podcast. Now back to the show. Herbert also spent years collecting and studying his own fingernails on the theory that their unique striations might be useful for identification also. Hmm. You know how criminals frequently leave their fingernails behind at a crime scene. I mean, every time I ever broke into a house, I trimmed my fingernails and left them in the sink. Maybe they're biting their nails just out of nervousness. Mm -hmm. Crime is anxious business. (laughs) It does tend to make one nervous. It's true. (laughs) Hear those sirens coming and you start gnawing away. Yep. A little nibble here and there. Soon, Herbert was given the opportunity to participate in his first court case, a murder trial in which he testified for the defendant who lost decisively and was promptly convicted. (laughs) But Herbert's hobby had now developed into a passion, a weird, creepy passion, but a potentially lucrative one. Herbert next applied for a Department of Justice grant to expand his research, inspired apparently by his history of dog killing and failure to win at any trial, the government approved his funding, eager to make sure that this creepy weirdo would have the opportunity to continue failing to convince juries for years to come. Money well spent. 
The first serious publication for which Herbert was responsible was the result of that Department of Justice grant. It was called Flight Characteristics and Stain Patterns of Human Blood. So if you're looking for some nice, light, weakened reading. Mm. You know, curl up with a nice cup of blood. This was the publication that would establish Herbert as America's premier and at the time only blood spatter analysis expert. A later book that he co-authored about himself would be modestly titled The Evidence Never Lies, The Casebook of a Modern Sherlock Holmes, unquote. Oh, wow. He's a humble fellow, this Herbert. Yes, delusions of grandeur notwithstanding. Meanwhile, apparently everyone simply ignored the passages in his book and his research papers in which Herbert fully admitted that there was no quantifiable proof of any of the facts that he was asserting. Wait, what? He said in the books, none of this is real, but continue to give me money. He was like, here's another hypothetical. This could be a thing. (laughs) It was a buyer beware situation, literally, with Mm -hmm. those books. Uh Uh-huh. Regardless, the Supreme Court of California became the first to accept bloodstain pattern analysis as admissible in trial in 1957. Herbert now rebranded his basement to, and this is true, the Laboratory of Forensic Science, and he appointed himself the director. (laughs) So it turns out I am also the director of my basement. Mm. And uh, you can be too, Duncan. We, we, we don't be, have a basement. We can be basement co-directors. That's true. We, we, we lack the requisite material. We have a crawl space. Mm, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if we could both be directors of the crawl space. It's, it's, <laughs> this crawl space isn't big enough for the both of us. <laughs> Probably not. Literally. Yes. So soon Herbert's expertise was so in demand that he essentially started franchising. He created his own school of blood spatter analysis and began offering the equivalent of blood spatter diplomas. liberally spattered with blood. I hope they are actually spattered Mm. for authenticity. Yes. Within months, Herbert was pumping out quote-unquote experts in his field who had paid him for the privilege of explaining to them the basics of a dubious pseudoscience. Note that Herbert's advertisements for the course explicitly stated that there were, quote, no minimum educational requirements to be accepted into the class, and the entire course took just 40 hours to complete. Holy shit. So a dedicated week and no high school diploma and your dumb, illiterate ass can go out there and be like, yep, he's guilty. Here's why. By 1983, Herbert had created so many so-called experts that they formed their own professional organization, the International Association of Bloodstain Pattern Analysts. Herbert McDonald was named the group's only distinguished member in acknowledgement of his status as head quack. <laughs> He was now the foremost expert in an entire pseudoscientific discipline that he himself had created. I've passed amazement and I've now crept solidly into depression. This is sad. To it me. is unfortunate. Yeah. So when it comes to criminal trials, Duncan, the judge decides which pieces of evidence can be admitted and which witnesses can be allowed to testify. Huh. You probably knew that. So if you're presenting yourself as an expert, you need a judge to sign off on your credentials and your bona fides. Mm-hmm. From a ProPublica article, quote, In 1980, Iowa's Supreme Court became the first to review McDonald's testimony. The judges didn't examine the accuracy of his technique. Instead, they cited his, quote, status as the leading expert in the field. Finding his testimony reliable, they noted McDonald's discipline had uh, national training programs, national and state organizations for experts in the field, the holding of annual seminars, and the existence of specialized publications. Gosh. It would be like allowing a flat earther to testify as an expert on the grounds that there are flat earth organizations. Uh, Or QAnon, yeah. They they have pamphlets, for Christ's sake. (laughs) 
What's more convincing than a, than a pamphlet? <laughs> Nothing. I'm convinced by every pamphlet that comes to our home. That's why I'm going to go learn to spot sex workers. No one's going to get that. <laughs> Did we ever even bring that? I think we brought it up on yeah, one episode. Yeah, when we first moved in, we've got we've got a new thing that we do where we hide this stupid pamphlet that showed up on our doorstep randomly in each other's areas and just wait years. I've lost track of who hit it last and where it might be. It's going to pop up somewhere. It's going to, yeah. yeah. It's an ongoing mystery game. We play with each other for no fucking reason at all. Now, of course, not all judges were on board. Iowa Supreme Court Judge Mark McCormick wrote in 1980, quote, I am unable to agree that reliability of a novel scientific technique can be established solely on the basis of the success of its leading proponent in peddling his wares to consumers, unquote. Ouch. Preach. Shots fired. Fuck. (laughs) However, McDonald steadfastly defended his techniques and continued testifying at trials. To get a sense of just how knowledgeable and infallible this guy wasn't, he testified in the O.J. Simpson trial for the defense. Oh, God. He claimed that based on the results of his experimentation back at the forensics basement, a glove soaked with blood could not shrink. And as we know, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. We're still going to cover that someday. Hmm. I'm sure that'll be an episode. Blood spatter would become part of American pop culture and the collective consciousness through those kind of high-profile trials. And, of course, uh, CSI. And then later, my beloved Dexter would further cement the idea of blood spatter as solid, established science— But it would be fair to say that the credibility of blood spatter evidence is more contentious than established. And the problem with any science that is open to interpretation is that it is also open to competing interpretations. Uh As blood spatter analysis became more common and experts proliferated, there would be more and more cases of prosecutors and defense lawyers in the same trial hiring blood spatter experts to give completely conflicting accounts of the story the blood was telling. (laughs) In fact... Herbert McDonald himself has testified against his own students many times over the years. Dude. <laughs> Meanwhile, a huge number of defendants have been convicted with very little evidence other than blood spatter. And as you can imagine, mistakes were made. Mm. In 1997, single mother Julie Ray's son was killed by an intruder, but a pair of blood spatter analysts claimed that the blood told a different story. She would be convicted of her own child's murder in 2000 and spent six years in jail before being exonerated when a serial killer confessed to the crime. Almost a decade later, Missouri resident Brad Jennings was sentenced to prison in 2009 for the murder of his wife three years earlier, a conclusion based entirely on blood spatter evidence. The case was later overturned based on conflicting testimony by a separate blood spatter expert. So in 2009, the National Academy of Sciences released a groundbreaking report on modern forensic techniques, and it included a devastating takedown of the supposed science behind blood spatter analysis. The report concluded, quote, Some experts extrapolate far beyond what can be supported. The uncertainties associated with bloodstain pattern analysis are enormous. As to the conclusions drawn from blood spatter, the report found them to be, quote, more subjective than scientific. The report was rigorous, compelling, and largely ignored. Oh. According to an NBC News article, judges are wary of bucking prior rulings, choosing to accept the methods as they always have, rather than risk failed prosecutions. Yep. And that just comes down to ego and fallibility. Yeah, it's like the it's like they're saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And the problem is, it's fucking broke. It done been broke. It was invented broke. It was never not broke. Mm-hmm. Today, Herbert is 90 years old and a little bit prickly. He dismisses criticism, saying in one interview, 
quote, overall, I am very satisfied with my life's accomplishments and have few regrets, unquote. Mm. He does, however, reportedly get very upset when people refer to his science as blood splatter analysis as opposed to spatter. Mm. So next time you bludgeon someone, Duncan, just keep that in mind. Their blood has not splatted. It has spatted. <laughs> very important. It's a light spattering distinction. Of, yes. Yeah. Cranial blood. Herbert always focused on the important stuff. Right. Clearly. Not, not the credibility of his techniques, but uh, semantics. Right. I kind of get that, though. <laughs> I do get very upset about semantics. You do. But I, too, am a shitty person. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we're aware of the problem. We're just not fixing it. <laughs> So there is a lot more to cover, obviously. In the next episode, we're going to dive into DNA and maybe some other stuff. I don't know yet. I'm just, I'm just getting over being sick. So I don't want to have to think about uh, more than I'm currently thinking about, which isn't much. But I will dive into it soon, and I'm sure I'll get excited uh, once, I, once I get a taste yeah, of yeah. DNA. That's, um, hmm. Phrasing. That's, uh, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> not for me, you're not. We have a new maniac. Yeah, yeah who actually used to be a menace. So hmm. Sarah Edenbaum has upgraded her membership from menace to maniac, which is badass. Indeed. We deeply appreciate it. I love that this is a thing that people can do and occasionally do. Uh, it makes me feel like they are rewarding us for improving or something. It's like we're, we're worth more to them than we were when they started. Yes, we've managed to suck less. <laughs> it's validating. <laughs> we also have a new menace. Nice. Meet completely lost. Um, Fair. <laughs> Which is how I assume most people find our show. Yes. They have no idea how they ended up here, and they essentially just surrendered. <laughs> I don't know how to unsubscribe to this show, so might as well join their Patreon. Yep. I don't know how buttons work, so fuck it. We also have a new minion. Woo! Jennifer Noel joined on Christmas. God damn, nice. I don't think that's a coincidence. No. Her name was Noel, mm -hmm. and she joined us directly on Christmas. She's clearly a saint. Yes. All bow down and worship. And finally, uh, one more new minion, Lindsay Kindle from the UK. We have a very large UK fan base, yeah. uh, even though we are traitorous Americans who wasted a bunch of your ancestors' tea. We, we apologize for that. I mean, it wasn't really us. It was mostly the Boston folk, but, you know. Finally, I feel like we should address a comment from Ampari on Spotify, even though I have actually mentioned this before. So Ampari has repeatedly asked for an episode on World War I, and I will make sure that it ends up in the next poll. I think, again, I think we've done that before. And I know you've been waiting patiently, Ampari, but also just keep in mind that to officially propose an episode and to vote on them, you need to join the Discord, and then you need to, like, convince people, because mm -hmm. I can't make it happen, you guys. Yeah. We have a process. So I would encourage you to do that if you have not, because uh, Duncan and I do not pick these topics. We are minions ourselves. I mean, I most specifically do not. I'm not even allowed in those channels. We're just the guys who say how high when uh, insomniacs tell us to jump. Indeed. So Ampari, we hope to see you in the Discord if you're not already there. And best of luck with that topic suggestion. And there's a chance it'll win. Yeah. I'm still, there's still interesting things to talk about about World War I and World War II. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to do it. And we will get around to it eventually. I mean, we're not planning on quitting this podcast anytime soon. So yeah. uh, every topic is on the table. Indeed. And that's all I got. All right. So um, quick shout out to the most excellent uh, Splody Cat on the Discord. Boom Splode. Boom Splode Cat is the awesomest. She sent us a. Uh, Picture of my face done with beads, and it is both awesome and terrifying to look upon. Its hollow eyes follow me around the room. It's glorious. It is. It's glorious and it's goofy. 
And uh, we seriously- Also goofery. Goofery. Yep. I made a word. It's what this podcast is guilty of on a regular basis. Intense goofery. Constant goofery. Yep. And so, yeah, thank you so much for doing that. We will be showing it off on the next um, live show just to have all of your your co-patrons ooh and awe at your massive awesomeness. And then, otherwise, and forever after. Knowledge is power. Sleep is overrated. (laughs) 